Chapter Two of Hans Brinker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Hans Brinker or The Silver Skates by Mary Mapes Dodge. Chapter Two Holland. Holland is one of the queerest countries under the sun. It should be called Oddland or Contraryland, for in nearly everything it is different from the other parts of the world. In the first place, a large portion of the country is lower than the level of the sea. Great dikes or bulwarks have been erected at a heavy cost of money and labor to keep the ocean where it belongs. On certain parts of the coast it sometimes leans with all its weight against the land, and it is as much as the poor country can do to stand the pressure. Sometimes the dikes give way, or spring a leak, and the most disastrous results ensue. They are high and wide, and the tops of some of them are covered with buildings and trees. They have even fine public roads on them, from which horses may look down upon wayside cottages. Often the keels of floating ships are higher than the roofs of the dwellings. The stork clattering to her young on the house-peak may feel that her nest is lifted far out of danger, but the croaking frog in neighboring bulrushes is nearer the stars than she. Water-bugs dart backward and forward above the heads of the chimney-swallows, and willow-trees seem drooping with shame because they cannot reach as high as the reeds nearby. Ditches, canals, ponds, rivers, and lakes are everywhere to be seen. High, but not dry, they shine in the sunlight, catching nearly all the bustle and the business, quite scorning the tame fields stretching damply beside them. One is tempted to ask, which is Holland, the shores or the water? The very verdure that should be confined to the land has made a mistake and settled upon the fish-ponds. In fact, the entire country is a kind of saturated sponge, or as the English poet Butler called it, a land that rides at anchor and is moored, in which they do not live, but go aboard. Persons are born, live, and die, and even have their gardens on canal-boats. Farmhouses, with roofs like great slouched hats pulled over their eyes, stand on wooden legs with a tucked-up sort of air, as if to say, we intend to keep dry if we can. Even the horses wear a wide stool on each hoof, as if to lift them out of the mire. In short, the landscape everywhere suggests a paradise for ducks. It is a glorious country in summer for barefoot girls and boys. Such wading, such mimic ship-sailing, such rowing, fishing, and swimming! Only think of a chain of puddles where one can launch chip boats all day long and never make a return trip. But enough. A full recital would set all young America rushing in a body towards the Zoida Zee. Dutch cities seem at first sight to be a bewildering jungle of houses, bridges, churches, and ships, sprouting into masts, steeples, and trees. In some cities vessels are hitched like horses to their owner's doorpost and receive their freight from the upper windows. Mothers scream to Lodovic and Cassie not to swing on the garden gate for fear they may be drowned. 
Water roads are more frequent there than common roads and railways. Water fences in the form of lazy green ditches enclose pleasure ground, farm, and garden. Sometimes fine green hedges are seen, but wooden fences such as we have in America are rarely met with in Holland. As for stone fences, a Dutchman would lift his hands with astonishment at the very idea. There is no stone there, except for those great masses of rock that have been brought from other lands to strengthen and protect the coast. All the small stones or pebbles, if there ever were any, seem to be imprisoned in pavements or quite melted away. Boys with strong, quick arms may grow from pinafores to full beards without a refining one to start the water rings or set the rabbits flying. The water roads are nothing less than canals, intersecting the country in every direction. These are of all sizes, from the great North Holland ship canal, which is the wonder of the world, to those which a boy can leap. Water omnibuses, called trekskoiten, canal boats, some of the first named are over thirty feet long. They look like green houses lodged on barges and are drawn by horses walking along the bank of the canal. The trekskoiten are divided into two compartments, first and second class, and when not too crowded the passengers make themselves quite at home in them. The men smoke, the women knit or sew, while children play upon the small outer deck. Many of the canal boats have white, yellow, or chocolate-colored sails. This last color is caused by a tanning preparation which is put on to preserve them. These trekskoiten constantly ply up and down the roads for the conveyance of passengers, and water drays, called pakskoiten, are used for carrying fuel and merchandise. Instead of green country lanes, Green canals stretch from field to barn, and from barn to garden, and the farms, or polders as they are termed, are merely great lakes pumped dry. Some of the busiest streets are water, while many of the country roads are paved with brick. The city boats with their rounded sterns, gilded prows, and gaily painted sides are unlike any others under the sun, and a Dutch wagon, with its funny little crooked pole, is a perfect mystery of mysteries. "'One thing is clear,' cries Master Brightside. "'The inhabitants need never be thirsty. But no, odd land is true to itself still. Notwithstanding the sea pushing to get in, and the lakes struggling to get out, and the overflowing canals, rivers, and ditches, in many districts there is no water fit to swallow. Our poor Hollanders must go dry, or drink wine and beer, or send far into the inland to Utrecht, and other favoured localities for that precious fluid, older than Adam, yet younger than the morning dew. Sometimes, indeed, the inhabitants can swallow a shower when they are provided with any means of catching it, but generally they are like the albatross-haunted sailors in Coleridge's famous poem, The Ancient Mariner. They see, Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. Great flapping windmills all over the country make it look as if flocks of huge seabirds were just settling upon it. Everywhere one sees the funniest trees, bobbed into fantastical shapes, with their trunks painted a dazzling white, yellow, or red. Horses are often yoked three abreast. Men, women, and children go clattering about in wooden shoes with loose heels. Peasant girls who cannot get bows for love 
hire them for money to escort them to the kermis, which is a fair, and husbands and wives lovingly harnessed themselves side by side on the bank of the canal, and dragged their pockskirts to market. Another peculiar feature of Holland is the dune, or sandhill. They are numerous along certain portions of the coast. Before they were sown with coarse reed-grass and other plants, to hold them down, they used to send great storms of sand over the inland. So, to add to the oddities, the farmers sometimes dig down under the surface to find their soil, and on windy days dry showers of sand often fall upon fields that have grown wet under a week of sunshine. In short, almost the only familiar thing we Yankees can meet with in Holland is a harvest song which is quite popular there though no linguist could translate it. Even then we must shut our eyes and listen only to the tune, which I leave you to guess. Yanker didy doodle down, didy doodle launter, Yankee viver voover vown, boater milk and taunter. On the other hand, many of the oddities of Holland serve only to prove the thrift and perseverance of the people. There is not a richer or more carefully tilled garden spot in the whole world than this leaky, springy little country. There is not a braver, more heroic race than its quiet, passive-looking inhabitants. Few nations have equaled it in important discoveries and inventions. None has excelled it in commerce, navigation, learning, and science, or set as noble examples in the promotion of education and public charities and none in proportion to its extent have expended more money or labor upon public works. Holland has its shining annals of noble and illustrious men and women, its grand historic records of patience, resistance, and victory, its religious freedom, its enlightened enterprise, its art, music, and literature. It has truly been called the battlefield of Europe, as truly may we consider it the asylum of the world, for the oppressed of every nation have there found shelter and encouragement. If we Americans, who after all are homeopathic preparations of Holland's stock, can laugh at the Dutch and call them human beavers, and hint that their country may float off any day at high tide, we can also feel proud, and say they have proved themselves heroes, and that their country will not float off while there is a Dutchman left to grapple it. There are said to be at least ninety-nine hundred large windmills in Holland, with sails ranging from eighty to one hundred and twenty feet long. They are employed in sawing timber, beating hemp, grinding, and many other kinds of work, but their principal use is for pumping water from the lowlands into the canals, and for guarding against the inland freshets that so often deluge the country. Their yearly cost is said to be nearly ten million dollars. The large ones are of great power. The huge circular tower, rising sometimes from the midst of factory buildings, is surmounted with a smaller one, tapering into a cap-like roof. This upper tower is encircled at its base with a balcony, high above which juts the axis turned by its four prodigious ladder-back sails. Many of the windmills are primitive affairs, seeming sadly in need of Yankee improvements, but some of the new ones are admirable. They are constructed so that by some ingenious contrivance they present their fans, or wings, 
to the wind in precisely the right direction to work with the requisite power. In other words, the miller may take a nap and feel quite sure that his mill will study the wind and make the most of it, until he wakens. Should there be but a slight current of air, every sail will spread itself to catch the faintest breath. But if a heavy blow should come, they will shrink at its touch, like great mimosa leaves, and only give it half a chance to move them. One of the old prisons of Amsterdam, called the Rasp House, because the thieves and vagrants who were confined there were employed in rasping logwood, had a cell for the punishment of lazy prisoners. In one corner of the cell was a pump, and in another an opening through which a steady stream of water was admitted. The prisoner could take his choice, either to stand still and be drowned, or to work for dear life at the pump and keep the flood down until his jailer chose to relieve him. Now it seems to me that, throughout Holland, nature has introduced this little diversion on a grand scale. The Dutch have always been forced to pump for their very existence, and probably must continue to do so to the end of time. Every year millions of dollars are spent in repairing dikes and regulating water levels. If these important duties are neglected, the country would be uninhabitable. Already dreadful consequences, as I have said, have followed the bursting of these dikes. Hundreds of villages and towns have from time to time been buried beneath the rush of waters, and nearly a million persons have been destroyed. One of the most fearful inundations ever known occurred in the autumn of the year 1570. Twenty-eight terrible floods had before that time overwhelmed portions of Holland, but this was the most terrible of all. The unhappy country had long been suffering under Spanish tyranny. Now, it seemed, the crowning point was given to its troubles. When we read Motley's history of the rise of the Dutch Republic, we learn to revere the brave people who have endured, suffered, and dared so much. Mr. Motley, in his thrilling account of the great inundation, tells us how a long-continued and violent gale had been sweeping the Atlantic waters into the North Sea, piling them against the coast of the Dutch provinces, how the dikes, taxed beyond their strength, burst in all directions, how even the handbos, a bulwark formed of oaken piles braced with iron, moored with heavy anchors, and secured by gravel and granite, was snapped to pieces like thread, how fishing-boats and bulky vessels floating up into the country became entangled among the trees, or beat in the roofs and walls of dwellings, and how at last all Friesland was converted into an angry sea. Multitudes of men, women, children, of horses, oxen, sheep, and every domestic animal, were struggling in the waves in every direction. Every boat, and every article which could serve as a boat, was eagerly seized upon. Every house was inundated. Even the graveyards gave up their dead. The living infant in his cradle, and the long-buried corpse in his coffin floated side by side. The ancient flood seemed about to be renewed. Everywhere, upon the tops of trees, upon the steeples of churches, human beings were clustered, praying to God for mercy, and to their fellow-men for assistance. As the storm at last was subsiding, boats began to ply in every direction, saving those who were struggling in the water, picking fugitives from roofs and treetops, 
and collecting the bodies of those already drowned. No less than one hundred thousand human beings had perished in a few hours. Thousands upon thousands of dumb creatures lay dead upon the waters, and the damage to property was beyond calculation. Robles, the Spanish governor, was foremost in noble efforts to save life and lessen the horrors of the catastrophe. He had previously been hated by the Dutch because of his Spanish or Portuguese blood, but by his goodness and activity in their hour of disaster he won all hearts to gratitude. He soon introduced an improved method of constructing the dikes, and passed a law that they should in future be kept up by the owners of the soil. There were fewer heavy floods from this time, though within less than three hundred years six fearful inundations swept over the land. In the spring there is always great danger of inland freshets, especially in times of thaw, because the rivers, choked with blocks of ice, overflow before they can discharge their rapidly rising waters into the ocean. Adding to this that the sea chafes and presses against the dikes, it is no wonder that Holland is often in a state of alarm. The greatest care is taken to prevent accidents. Engineers and workmen are stationed all along in threatened places, and a close watch is kept up night and day. When a general signal of danger is given, the inhabitants all rush to the rescue, eager to combine against their common foe. As everywhere else, straw is supposed to be of all things the most helpless in the water, of course in Holland it must be rendered the mainstay against a rushing tide. Huge straw mats are pressed against the embankments, fortified with clay and heavy stone, and once adjusted, the ocean dashes against them in vain. Raff Brinker, the father of Gretel and Hans, had for years been employed upon the dikes. It was at the time of a threatened inundation, when in the midst of a terrible storm, in darkness and sleet, the men were laboring at a weak spot near the Fier Mixluse, that he fell from the scaffolding and became insensible. From that hour he never worked again, though he lived on, mind and memory were gone. Gretel could not remember him otherwise than as the strange, silent man whose eyes followed her vacantly, whichever way she turned. But Hans had recollection of a hearty, cheerful-voiced father, who was never tired of bearing him upon his shoulder, and whose careless song still seemed echoing near, when he lay awake at night and listened. End of chapter.